Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined by our Criminal Justice Section delegates to give us an update or a recap on the activities of the House of Delegates at the ABA annual meeting in 2021. So we are joined by Neil Sonnet, criminal defense attorney, practices in Miami, Florida, and Stephen Salzberg, Wallace and Beverly Woodbury University Professor of Law, co-director of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program at George Washington University School of Law. Both Neil and Steve have served as chair of the section in the past. And also we'd like to note and congratulate Steve Salzberg for receiving the 2021 John H. Pickering Award from the ABA Senior Lawyers Division. So congratulations to you, Steve, on that award. And welcome to you you both. Nice to be here. (laughs) Okay, well, we've got a lot of resolutions to talk about this time. So we'll jump into them and I'll let you give the introductions to each of them. I'll just refer to them as their number. And then, you know, Neil and Steve, we've talked about which ones you're going to speak to today. So I'll just refer to the number and ask you to provide us with a summary and give our listeners an understanding of what potential impact this resolution will have on the criminal justice field. So first, let's begin with number 503. Neil, if you could give us that introduction. Sure. This resolution was a follow-up to the one that was passed in 2006, which urged the establishment of a commission to study the root causes of slavery and subsequent denial of equal justice to Black people. That resolution supported calls for a committee to be formed in order to study and make findings relating to the present social, political, and economic consequences of the criminal legal system and the disproportionate incarceration for African Americans living in the United States. The ABA has continued over the years since the first one passed in 2006, to push for other racial equity measures. In 2020, for example, the ABA passed resolutions supporting the establishment of anti-racism goals for ABA-accredited law schools, the prohibition of lynching, and periodic training for court system actors on implicit bias. Another resolution urged the establishment of Juneteenth, as a paid legal holiday. And the sponsors noted in that report that the resolution is proposed at a time when a step toward racial equity and education is necessary. So this resolution then harkens back to HR 40, the legislation that was proposed in 2006 and urges Congress to appropriate funds for a committee within the commission established by H.R. 40 to study and make findings relating to the present day social, political, and economic consequences of the criminal legal system, and then to authorize the committee of the commission to propose public policies or government actions that may be appropriate to address such consequences. 
It addresses a longstanding issue of racial disparity in the criminal justice system. And we urge the House to approve this. And indeed, the House did by a wide margin, 263 to 25. So we were successful on this resolution. Wonderful. Thank you, Neil. So, Steve, would you tell us about Resolution 504? Sure. This resolution was focused on prosecutors' offices, and it called upon prosecutors' offices at every level to track the data concerning the people that they are charging or deciding not to charge. So the resolution asked prosecutors to keep track of the race of the suspects that come before them, gender, to track whether or not the persons were released pending their trial, whether the prosecutor's office opposed release or supported it, and track the disposition of a case. Was it disposed of by plea at trial? And if it was by plea, was there a plea bargain? And if so, what was the prosecutor's offer? And how finally did the case come out? This was the one resolution that we had that actually had opposition. And the opposition was from a prosecutor in Wisconsin. He's really seemed like a very nice guy who basically said he is a big supporter of data, that he really understands that you can have decision-making that is skewed if the data is not tracked and if trends are not identified. But he said the problem for him was he's in the sixth largest county in Wisconsin. And he said there are approximately 13 prosecutors in his office and 13 staff who are not lawyers. And that the resolution calls upon his office to do things that they're just not capable of doing now. That is in a perfect world with all the resources available, this prosecutor would have joined us in calling for the data to be tracked. But there was this concern that medium to small offices will have difficulty doing the data collection and the publication of the data. We wanted it to be transparent. So Neil and I both agreed, and this is what we told the House of Delegates, that this resolution was one that was forward-looking. It was aspirational, that we didn't expect that the day after it's passed, every prosecutor's office in the United States was going to have unlimited resources and was going to be able to do this. But by putting it out there, we hope that prosecutors will seek those resources. And we mentioned that we would try to be helpful that even having our center, the ABA Center for Innovation, take a look and see whether there might be software hardware combinations that might work for smaller offices and enable the data to be tracked, if not perfectly, to be tracked better going forward than it has been in the past. The report that accompanied the resolution noted that somewhere around 30% of small prosecutors' offices make no effort at all now to track this data. And that's largely because they just don't have the people power to do it. Uh, this resolution also got strong support from the House of Delegates. And we committed to adding something to the report. I drafted something over the weekend and sent it on to Neil and a couple other people that I think captured what it is that we said that we would do to make this clearly aspirational rather than something we expected to happen overnight. Right. Oh, Neil, go ahead. Do you have something to add? The prosecutor that Steve made reference to, who's a prosecutor in Wisconsin, 
originally planned to be at the House of Delegates to argue against this resolution. But unfortunately, he had a problem with illness of a child. And we said, please take care of your child. We'll make sure that the House of Delegates understands your position, and we will prepare an addendum to our report to identify the concerns that you've expressed. So that's exactly what we're going to do. And I'm sure that when the final report is prepared, that this prosecutor, who, as Steve said, seems like a very nice guy, will be pleased with the results. This passed, by the way, 282 to 23. So it had substantial support from the House. Right. Thank you. I do love that you gave us a holistic representation of the discussion and the concerns that was brought up, because certainly on this podcast, as we've had guests come on and talk about the importance of data, it's been an ongoing part of our conversations here on this podcast. And, you know, for our listeners that follow these conversations, will appreciate, I'm sure that that was part of the conversation and that instead of just putting forward these ideals uh, that we're having the conversations about how they can actually be executed, how this can be sustainable change. So thank you very much for including that, Steve. So let's move on to number 505. Neil, if you would tell us about that resolution. This resolution called for raising the minimum age for juvenile delinquency prosecution to 14. There is a failure to set nationwide a meaningful standard of juvenile court jurisdiction, which I said to the House when I presented this, results in the criminalization of childhood. Many states have failed to set a minimum age. Some states set a very low minimum age. For example, California and Massachusetts set a minimum age at 12, Nebraska at 11, North Carolina has a minimum age of six. In over half of the states, it's legal to prosecute a five-year-old because there's no minimum age of juvenile court jurisdiction. And in 21 states, children who are 12 and older can be transferred to criminal courts to be treated as adults. The failure to set a meaningful standard of juvenile court jurisdiction really does result in the criminalization of childhood. So we urge that the recommended standard be raised to 14 by adopting this resolution and urging states to follow suit. And we argued that it would promote consistency in addressing this critically important issue. It also will better align with the research and science on child development and the reality that children below the age of 14 have diminished culpability, and many are just not competent to stand trial or have any real sense of the legal system. This resolution, again, passed by the House of Delegates by a vote of 261 to 36. So we were very pleased with the results of this before the House. Mm -hmm. And listeners, we've talked about the impact of criminalizing youth so young on this podcast before I refer you to our school to prison pipeline episode and other juvenile justice episodes in our inventory. I can link those in this episode summary as well, if you're interested. Listeners, I'd also like you to know that our section is a leader in setting juvenile justice standards for the industry and our task force is currently at work and updating those. So 
wanted to make sure you all knew of that important work that our section is addressing long-term. So Neil, if you would give us a summary on 506, I'll turn the time back over to you. Yeah, 506 also dealt with young people and it urged the governments to enact laws and adopt policies prohibiting the use of chemical agents on young people in detention and in correctional facilities. The ABA wants people to learn and be aware of the harmful effects of using chemical agents on young people in detention and correctional facilities. And we've been a consistent voice over the years calling for elimination of harsh treatment of children and young people by anyone under color of law. For example, we previously urged the adoption and enforcement of legislation and policy that prohibits school personnel from using seclusion, mechanical restraint, chemical restraint on preschool, elementary, and secondary students. And we called for the adoption of policies which prohibit the strip search of children and youth except in exceptional circumstances. This resolution, 506, is consistent with these principles. It specifically urges federal, state, local, territorial, and tribal governments to enact laws and adopt policies that prohibit the use of chemical restraints on young people in detention or correctional facilities. Those chemical agents irritate the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the lungs. They incapacitate people by inducing multiple psychological reactions, including a burning sensation, sometimes temporary blindness, body spasm, and difficulty breathing. And we concluded, or I concluded my presentation to the House by quoting from our report, which said, and I quote here, chemical restraints are painful and dangerous and should not be used because they do not further the goals of rehabilitation and positive youth development, and they're in contravention to the rights of the children and youth to be treated with dignity, humility, and respect. They should not be used. This passed overwhelmingly by the House, 298 to 15. We were very pleased with that result. Thank you, Neil. And we have one more resolution that the section put forward. So Steve, would you please tell us about 507? Sure. Uh, In 1990, that's 31 years before, the ABA considered a resolution put forward by the criminal justice section that dealt with private jails, prisons, and juvenile detention centers. And the ABA resolution in 1990 said, if any jurisdiction was going to use private prisons or jails or detention centers, they should do so with great caution. There were reasons to be skeptical about whether or not these institutions were the kind of institutions that deserve public support. The resolution that passed the House in August said, we've now had 31 years of experience with private jails, prisons, and detention centers, and it's time to put an end to them. They basically cost more than public institutions. They have pernicious effects. There are incentives because they're money-making institutions to keep people in longer. So there's an incentive to find that inmates have violated one of the rules so that they can lose good time and be detained for a longer period of time. There's evidence that at some of these institutions, the staff 
has been reduced in order to save money. And that's not good for safety, control of the prison population. The programs have been cut back to save money. But aside from the money issue, at the core of this resolution was the belief that when you put people in jail or prison or a detention center, that's a public responsibility. It's at the core of our criminal justice system. And that those people we elect or have appointed to office, they're the ones that should be responsible for the effective running of these institutions. We had not to be arming them out to institutions that are run for profit. And one of the things we learned, this was after the report was written, that a number of pension plans, including those for judges in some places, invest and make money on these private prisons, jails, and detention centers. And there's something wrong with judges sentencing people to serve time in these private institutions where the judiciary is investing in them. There's a conflict that's pretty apparent there. But basically, the criminal justice section believed and the House of Delegates strongly supported the notion that we have a public responsibility to take care of the people that we institutionalize. We ought not to be turning that over to private enterprise. Yeah, a compelling resolution from the section, certainly as you positioned it just then, Steve. I, I certainly didn't know about that conflict with investment that you noted. So that's certainly alarming. Thank you for, could, yeah, go could ahead. I mention two other resolutions? Oh, yes. Um, they weren't our resolutions. One was 508. Resolution 508 was brought forward by the Young Lawyers Division. And it asked the House of Delegates to adopt the position that prosecutors running for elective office should not accept campaign contributions from law enforcement. CJS did not take a position on that resolution, but some of us, I know for myself, and I think Neil felt the same way, that there are a lot of problems with this resolution since it singled out law enforcement, but didn't single out corporations, polluters, others who might have some reason to want to influence prosecutors. And so the young lawyers agreed that they would take it back and we would work with them on getting a resolution that everyone thought would be more comprehensive and more balanced. And the same thing happened with resolution 510, which called upon jurisdictions to do away with no-knock warrants, either completely or to have them only in exceptional circumstances. The problem with the resolution was that there was a great deal of difficulty in identifying when no-knock warrants are okay and when they're being used willy-nilly and are objectionable. And so the young lawyers again agreed that they would withdraw the resolution, work with CJS to bring something back at the mid-year meeting, which is going to come up in February in Seattle. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for sharing that background with our listeners to help us all understand how collaborative these resolutions can be. There are a few resolutions that, speaking of collaboration, we co-sponsored, though CJS wasn't the primary sponsor of them. So we're going to give you a chance to just share with our listeners what those were as well and why it was important for CJS to co-sponsor them. So we'll begin with 604. Steve, if you could give us an update on that one. 604 
was a resolution that called upon jurisdictions to follow the ABA standards on body-worn cameras, the cameras that police either wear on their helmets or on their uniforms somewhere. About five years ago, we had a task force that addressed body-worn cameras. In fact, I was the reporter for it. And we came up with best practices. We didn't move that to the House of Delegates five years ago. And the reason was we thought it was still too new. Too many jurisdictions were just getting to body-worn cameras. There were all kinds of disparate policies on when to record, when not to record, how long to retain footage, how to keep the expense of footage down. But we addressed them and did the best we could five years ago. And now the criminal justice section co-sponsored a resolution that built upon the work that we previously had done. And basically, we checked to, to see if if we actually did pretty well five years ago, whether this new set of principles was consistent. It was. And the House of Delegates basically approved that overwhelmingly. I don't remember the vote. I don't know if Neil does. No, I don't, actually. But it did pass overwhelmingly and it had broad support in the House of Delegates. Well, Neil, would you tell us about another resolution that we co-sponsored, number 605, please? Well, 605 was a resolution that called for diversity data collection. The principle was that we need people to trust the courts to administer justice fairly and efficiently. And we don't know enough about diversity among these key players in courts. And the research that has been done leaves much to be desired. So on the principle that we need to know more about diversity in the justice system, judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, we need that data to be collected in a manner that protects privacy while allowing for the publication of aggregate data. And we need data that allows people to self-report their affiliations rather relying on observation or inferences from affiliations in a bio. So this resolution called for that kind of data collection to be administered, and we supported it. We were not asked to speak on it. We waived our right to speak. We were listed as speakers, and it passed the House of Delegates by a fairly wide margin. Great. Again, illustrating the need for more data in all things in the criminal justice system. Thank you, Neil. So finally, Resolution 607, Steve, would you please give us a summary of this resolution? Yeah, sure. I think everybody who is listening to the podcast is well aware of the various courts, specialized courts that have been set up in many jurisdictions. Early on, it was drug court as an alternative to prosecuting people for every drug offense that one could imagine. And then there were veterans courts. And one of the other developments was homeless courts. And we in the ABA have been very supportive of these alternative courts. And again, wasn't our draft, but our committee drafted a set of principles on homeless court programs. And the resolution simply urged jurisdictions that are going to have homeless court programs to adopt these principles to govern their homeless courts. And it also passed overwhelmingly. And there was, I, I there was broad, one, oh, go ahead, Neil. There was broad support 
among the entities in the ABA which proposed the resolution. The primary proposer was the Commission on Homelessness and Poverty, but the criminal justice section, the section of civil rights and social justice, the senior lawyers division, and the Standing Committee on Legal Aid and Indigent Defense also co-sponsored this. So it had wide support. I did not note the actual numerical vote, but it passed widely. And you might want to note that this was the first and many people hope the last hybrid meeting of the House of Delegates. Ah, yes. Some of us, some of us, Neil and I included, participated, you know, via Zoom. There were 200 or so people who were actually physically present. But at one point, it was in relation to Resolution 604, which I talked about. I got called on to speak and they couldn't find me. I had been on the Zoom thing all day, but they couldn't see me. And when they finally found me, I said, well, I was lost and now I'm found. (laughs) And and I gave up. I wait as we often do. I waived the right to speak. And that is another thing I should mention that we have tried, Neil and I, to minimize the repetition on these resolutions. It's rare if Neil introduces, as he did, 503, 505, and 506, I'm usually the first speaker in favor. On all three of those, I waived the right to speak because Neil just did a great job presenting. There was no opposition, and the House of Delegates appreciates the fact that we don't waste their time. Right. The the same principle is true of those that Steve introduces, because he always does a wonderful job in laying out what the resolution stands for. And there really is no need if there's no opposition for other speakers to chime in. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both for giving us that recap of what happened in the House of Delegates. Important for our listeners to understand the policy arm of what we're doing in the work of the section. So we appreciate you contributing to that. And listeners, if you're wondering how to be involved in putting forward resolutions, again, we encourage you to get involved at the committees of the section. Those are listed on the website. I can link to those. And also, ultimately, they need to be proposed to our director of standards, Linda Britton, who will put those forward. So you can always reach out to staff if you're interested in getting more involved in that. So thank you again to Neil and Steve for joining us. Listeners, again, Neil Sonnet is a criminal defense attorney based in Miami, Florida, and Steve Salzberg is the Wallace and Beverly Woodbury University Professor of Law, co-director of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program at George Washington University School of Law. And thank you for having us, Emily, and talking about these resolutions. Of course. Ditto. Right. Well, thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.